This is They Create Worlds, Episode 59, William's Crazy Story, Part 1. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It's a new year and we just got back from the asylum. We went and visited Williams. He was pretty crazy. He lost his mind. We managed to sort it all out, kind of. (laughs) That's quite an analogy there for the Williams Manufacturing Company, Jeff. Well, you know, me and my crazy intros. (laughs) It is definitely true, though, that Williams has one of the far more convoluted histories of any of the companies that have been involved in the video game industry. You've had lots of companies out there that have been owned by multiple parents over the years and have spun out this way and that way. You have the Atari mess, which is its own thing and is very complicated, but Williams definitely gives it a run for its money when you put together all of the buyouts, spinouts, renames, etc. throughout its entire history. It's a pretty convoluted story, but somewhere in between all of those crazy corporate shenanigans, they managed to turn out some of the greatest pinball and video games of all time. So they're certainly worthy of discussion here. Definitely. And you've alluded to before that their story, their entire rise, fall, acquisition, spinoffs, whatever, is more insane than the Atari brand episode where we went over all the stuff that went on with them. It's more insane than I want to say pretty much any other company we know of, right? It very well might be. Um, The deals themselves were probably slightly more straightforward than some of the Atari deals because, of course, with Atari, you had the splits into so many different Atari companies. There's always only ever been one Williams, really, but it's just gone through so many strange permutations that... It's pretty hard to keep track of, so we're going to go over some of these uh, financial craziness as well as talking about some of the games, of course, as well. All right. So at the beginning, who's this Williams person and how did he get into the industry? Was he in coin-op originally? Did he go into video games? I know they made pinball at some point. Oh, well, this is way, way, way before video games. The founder of the company... Williams Manufacturing Company, was a guy named Harry Williams. Harry Williams was an engineer by training, graduated from Stanford in 1929, but he didn't go into engineering. He was going into advertising, production, production in the advertising business. Then this little thing called the Great Depression happened, and nobody was advertising anything anymore because nobody was selling anything anymore. Or buying things anymore. Yeah, so that kind of sucked. Uh, He got by, he was in Los Angeles. Uh, He had been born in New York, but his family had moved out to Los Angeles when he was a teenager. So he was in L.A. He did some work on movies, even the occasional uh, in front of the camera kind of extra kind of thing, but carpentry and other kind of stuff. So he was having real difficulty making ends meet and was trying to find some other way to, you know, stay fed. We all like eating. On occasion. And such. He happened to attend a sales convention in 1930 for some coin-op game called Hi-Li, based on the weird sort of sport, I guess. 
But the game was basically about flipping a cork ball into a basket. It's not a simulation necessarily of High Lie, but, you know, it was called High Lie. So it was one of these conventions where this guy, almost like, you know, the Blue Suede Shoe guys that we talked about in our Pong episode who are promising fantastic earnings on this game. You know, it wasn't traditional coin-op distribution, which, of course, itself was in its infancy in 1930, not well established. So they were promising that you'd get great earnings on these games, so he had a little bit of savings, so he bought some. That didn't go well at all, really. Uh, He couldn't get good locations. Don't have locations, those games aren't going to work. But then he was kind of clued in to a different game that was doing much, much, much better called All-American Automatic Baseball by an engineer named George Miner. It was one of these pitch-and-bat-style baseball games where you're controlling the batter and you swing, you know, the ball comes at you and it goes to some part of the field. If it goes into the right holes, it's a hit. If it goes in the wrong holes, you're out, you know, that kind of thing. Those kind of games continued to be made for decades. And in fact, Williams was one of the major, major, major manufacturers of those games later on. So this game did a little better for him, but it kind of ended up being overthrown by this new thing coming around called pinball. Pinball? Who'd play that? Yeah, I think we talked before in one of our arcade episodes or something, how there was a brief period where these kind of sports games were very popular. And then pinball kind of took over from those games because pinball was a simpler game, a cheaper game, an easier game to put on your countertop or whatever. And so pinball very quickly supplanted these sports games. So the sports game thing did well for him for a bit, but then it kind of went downhill. But then pinball happened and he decided to get involved with the pinball industry. Now, as I said, he was an engineer, even though he hadn't really been practicing in that area. When Williams decided to get into this pinball thing, he didn't have to really seek out other people to get tables from like he did with his high ally game or with his all-american baseball game pinball was a simple enough game an easy enough game to figure out that he could make some pinball stuff himself so that's exactly what he did now this is not the williams manufacturing company at this point we're not there yet but he starts doing some playfield designs where you can take an old pinball game and put this new playfield that he puts together in it instead and uh, have a sort of brand new game And he bought out an early pinball company in L.A. called Automatic Amusements in order to start making and selling these things. After his playfield redesigns went over pretty well, he started doing his first full tables. Because he was an engineer, and I don't think I could be wrong about this because I haven't really researched this thoroughly, but I don't think many of the early pinball people were necessarily engineers. I mean, they understood kind of how this These very simple games of the time worked, but I don't think most of them were actually engineers. Because he was an engineer, he started doing interesting things with his pinball machines that nobody else was doing. Uh, The very first interesting thing he did was he had noticed that oftentimes people would be cheating the games. Uh, Just as a reminder, pinball back then, a very different game than today, it was basically a game where... You had holes, you had pins surrounding the holes, hence pinball. You still call pinball today, even though there's essentially no pins on the table whatsoever. Practically none. (laughs) Exactly. But that's where, of course, the term comes from. So you'd shoot the ball with the plunger, and it would navigate through these pins and go into one of these scoring holes. Much closer to Pachinko, though, of course, not vertically oriented like Pachinko. But, you know, more similar to Pachinko, really, than to modern pinball, I think it's fair to say. Definitely. 
So he was noticing that people would be actually lifting and maneuvering the pinball cabinet itself to get the ball where they wanted it to go. Most of these games at this time were still countertop games. They were not on legs. And even those very rare games that were on legs at the time, they were still far smaller and far more lightweight than a modern pinball table. So the idea of picking it up, lifting it, moving it around, you know, is not such a hard concept. And, uh, you know, Harry Williams did not like this at all. Did he come up with the tilt mechanism? Oh, that's where we're going. Oh, dear. That's where we're going. So he started thinking about ways to, to try to solve this. And at first he thought, well, maybe I can put some, you know, small spikes or whatever on the bottom of the cabinet. Well, I mean, he didn't get very far with that idea because, you know, <laughs> that's not very nice. Owie. I mean, a person might not even realize they're there. And then, whoops, what have you done? Well, I appear to be horribly lacerated. I'm not giving you any more quarters. I might be taking your quarters away with suing. Well, nobody's given quarters at this time, though. Nickels and pennies. Fine. <laughs> so he comes up with this idea where he basically mounts a ball on a pedestal, a metal ball on a pedestal within the machine. And if the ball falls off the pedestal, it causes the machine to shut down, to stop working. It's like a kill switch kind of thing. As the story goes, he didn't originally call it the tilt mechanism. The story goes that when he was observing somebody play this game that he made, you know, the person kind of exclaimed, you know, damn it, I tilted it. And that's where he came up with the name. There's some evidence that that story is not true. There's some evidence that the concept of the tilt as a word, as a concept that already existed, it was just applied to this. So, you know, like all of these stories, it makes a great story, but it may very well not be true. Facts may vary. But the important thing is he did do the first tilt mechanism in 1933. So that was uh, obviously a very important innovation. Uh, the, the way it's done now and the way it was done even within a few years of him inventing that is very different. It wasn't any longer a ball on a pedestal. It was refined. But it's all the same basic concept. Stop the player from cheating by banging on or shifting around the cabinet by making that that if you do that too much, you get an error and your game's over. Yeah, pretty much. Though in professional pinball players, they take advantage of that because it's actually designed into it. And there's certain bumps that are allowed. There's certain bumps that if you do it too much within a certain period of time, then it will lock it out. It's fun. Yeah. And, and these days it's not so important, so to speak. I mean, you know, you would often get prizes for winning at pinball. I mean, there were gam there were payout machines, actual payout machines, but even machines that weren't payout. You know, if you got enough points or something, maybe you'd get a piece of gum from the store owner. So there was a definite economic incentive back then to make sure that people were not manipulating the machine in such a way that they were always getting the ball in a good hole because there was actual money or prize attached to that beyond, you know, the tickets that can get you little plastic figurines and that boom box that is 20 years old, but is still sitting there for 50,000 tickets or whatever. Yeah, about that. <laughs> so these days, obviously, yeah, I mean, people play around with the tilt and are clever with the tilt and whatnot. But, you know, back then it was a real economic necessity. It's like we got to stop people from cheating these games so much. <laughs> so he did that. Then he got to thinking a couple years later that he or a year later that he really needed to do something different and special. I mean, by this time, the pinball field is super crowded. It's getting harder and harder to stand out from the crowd and do something that particularly remarkable that people want to buy. And, you know, he's not in Chicago. He's in L.A. 
So it's even extra hard for him to try to come up with something that people are going to buy because even though L.A. has pinball business and there are distributors out there, you know, the manufacturing is mostly done in Chicago. So he gets to thinking, it's like, how do I make the game more interesting? And he decides, well, there's got to be more play field action. There's got to be more going on on the play field than just ball going through pins and getting in a hole. Well, how can I make it more exciting? And he decides, well, I can use electricity, which wasn't really done with pinball machines at this point. They were just purely mechanical devices. And I can use a solenoid. And I can create this little device that when a ball falls into a hole, it pops back out of the hole and gets to keep traveling down the field. And, you know, you get points for it falling in that hole. And if it falls into other holes, you'll get points there. That's what he does. He uses a solenoid and he creates this mechanism and suddenly pinball is electromechanical now. He sells this through a new company called Pacific Amusements that was founded by a guy named Fred McClellan who had been a carburetor manufacturer and decided to get into this new pinball business. It does really well and it's interesting while it's on the, you know, they have a display area and while it's on the show floor there, some of the guys at the company decide to play a little practical joke on Fred because they have this little bell that sounds pretty much just like his phone, the ringer on his phone. And so they decide to rig up one of these contact machines. The name of the game is Contact. Rig up one of these contact machines so that every time the ball is kicked out of a hole, the bell on the machine rings. And then it sounds like his phone, and he thinks his phone's ringing, and he goes off to answer the phone. Instead of playing the game. Right, a little practical joke. It turns out, though, that people really like the sound feature. The tables that have the sound on it, the bell on it, is attracting more attention than the other tables on the show floor. So they make that a standard feature of the game. Contact is not, as it is with any first, it's not the first one to use electricity. It's not the first one to have a sound effect built in. It was on legs, and it was not the first one to be on legs. But Contact was really the first game that brought all of these elements together. It had electricity. It was electromechanical and semi-mechanical. It had sound effects when you score. It had multiple scoring opportunities using those kick-out things to allow the ball to move further down the playfield. It's still not modern pinball. It's still not a flipper game. There's still no bumpers yet. It's got a long ways to go, but this is kind of the beginning of the march towards what we think of pinball today. Starts with this game, Contact. It's the first one to bring all of that together in one package. So already he's responsible for really the genesis of pinball because he's got that tilt mechanism. He's got this kick out thing. He's bringing the electromechanical and sound effects together into a play field. And he's making it a freestanding game on legs rather than just a countertop game. Right. Mm-hmm. So he seemed to be a major, major force. He is. He's one of the most uh, important innovators in the entire history of pinball. And, and that's certainly some of his most important innovations. So obviously after that game does well, and it does really well, it goes nationwide. It's the first game of his that is really a huge success. And obviously many of its features are adopted by the other companies. They copy what he's doing. After that, I mean, that attracts the attention of the Chicago companies. They want him working for them. They don't want him just off in L.A. doing his own thing. So in 1935, he ends up coming to Chicago, and he becomes the chief engineer, chief pinball engineer for Rockola, 
which is a company that became bigger in jukeboxes as time went on. They're more known today as a jukebox company, but in the very beginning of pinball, they were kind of important in pinball, too. A couple of interesting things happen while he's there. First is that he comes up with yet another innovation. This is the period of time when payouts are starting to become big after Bally had launched their rocket machine in 1933. Payouts are taking over more and more of the market. You launch your ball with the plunger. If it falls into the right hole, you get some kind of payout. You know, it's a combination of slot machines and pinball. We talked about this. It's the start of the whole gambling stigma with pinball and all of that. Well, Harry Williams was not very impressed with that. He didn't like that. He thought that it was a bad way to go because of the negative connotations of the gambling that brought in the industry. So he's thinking to himself, what can I do to give a reward to the player? Because clearly now you're not going to be able to compete without giving a reward of some kind. How can I give a reward to the player without giving them a cash prize, without making it basically a slot machine? And he decides, well, I guess what I can do is I can give them an extra play if they get a certain number of points or if they get the ball in the right hole or whatever. And he doesn't design the mechanism himself. He then has one of his assistants go out and design the mechanism. As a result of this, Harry Williams is the first one to come up with the concept of rewarding an extra ball for accumulating a certain number of points, which, of course, is the same concept that was used in video games to give a player an extra life, a one-up, when they received a certain number of points. So there's another thing that you can trace all the way back to Mr. Harry Williams. He's batting a million so far. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. The other thing that happens at Rockola is he meets a young engineer named Lyndon Durant. Just like Harry himself, is just he's an absolute whiz. He really knows what he's doing. He impresses uh, Harry with a new score totalizer that he came up with. The totalizer being the thing that turns the scoring reels as you accumulate points, you know, keeps track of your score. They become fast friends. They become partners in working on things together. They stay together as they go around to other companies. Harry Williams is a great engineer, so he's in high demand. He ends up working at several different companies in the 30s. He works with Rockola for a while. He goes to Bally. He goes to the Exhibit Supply Company, which is a company that didn't survive to the video era, but in that period was a pretty important company in coin-op. You know, they just gain a reputation as being brilliant designers together, working hand-in-hand. Hand. So they finally decide to strike out on their own. In the early 1940s, with the onset of World War II, they decide to break away and found their own company, which can secure wartime contracts and can do refurbished pinball tables during the war. Because I think we talked about this in our arcade episode, but during the war, pinball construction was shut down. Pinball uses a lot of steel, a lot of metal. Yeah. And you're not going to be putting steel into pinball machines when you need airplanes and battleships and <laughs> whatever else. Bullets. Guns, rifles, rivets. Right. So all the pinball companies had to stop doing pinball during this period of time. Williams and Durant decide that they'll form a company together that will get some war contracts, but then will also refurbish tables. They'll take old tables, you know, that still has all the steel and everything, and just do a new play field, which is just wood and other relatively cheap and not so essential to the war effort products. And so that's what they do. They found a company called the United Manufacturing Company to do that. And then in 1943, something goes wrong. We don't know 
why we don't know this story there were rumors at the time that they had a falling out over a woman could be that could not be it could be that they just didn't get along it could be that harry just decided he was ready for new challenges i mean we don't know i mean harry williams was interviewed i mean he lived all the way to the early 80s so i mean he was interviewed but i don't think anyone or at least anyone that's published has ever gotten to the bottom of what happened but for whatever reason in the middle of 1943 williams sells his stake in united manufacturing completely cuts ties with the company before the end of the year he goes into business for himself as the Williams Manufacturing Company. Many different dates get thrown around for the establishment of the company. I've seen 43, 44, 46. I've seen a lot of dates. Going back through the coin-op publications, though, the company definitely existed in late 1943 because it's mentioned in Billboard magazine in late 1943. And he's mentioned. It's even it's Harry Williams of the Williams Manufacturing Company that's mentioned. It was definitely in place by the end of 1943. So that's the beginning of Williams Manufacturing. We don't know the month, but roughly the end right, of the year. But, but we do know the year, and we know it's not 44 or 46 or any of those other dates that are thrown around. All right. Williams is a game designer of great ability. He doesn't really want to be the manager of a company. I presume that... He wanted to strike out on his own and have his own company for the freedom it would give him to do what he wanted. I mean, I think there was a desire to be an entrepreneur in that sense. But he never really had the desire to be a business magnate. So in 1947, he sold just under half the company to a guy named Sam Stern. Sam Stern was a root operator in Philadelphia. He got involved in the business in 1931, right at the beginning of the pinball boom. He had some trouble getting established as a new guy, but he kind of figured out the business finally. He became a jukebox distributor in Philadelphia, and that really got him going. And he was one of the most successful distributors on the East Coast. But he wanted to move up the chain. He wanted to be part of a bigger, more important company. And so he set his sights on Williams. Problem, my guess would be, I don't know this, but probably because he knew that Williams wasn't all that keen really on running his own company. So he'd be receptive. As his son Gary, who's still in the business, you know Stern Pinball, of course. Of course. Sam Stern is the father of Gary Stern of Stern Pinball. And, you know, as Gary tells the story, Sam Stern just very boldly walked into Harry Williams' office one day, put his feet up on Harry's desk, and said, Why don't you sell me? 49% of your company. Williams probably didn't know quite what to make of that, but he said he'd think about it. He was a pilot. He often liked to go flying when he was making big decisions. So he went out and flew his airplane and thought about it for a little bit and came back and said, all right, I'll do that. So Sam Stern becomes the uh, vice president of the company and basically becomes the guy that's running the company. While Harry Williams just gets to do engineering and design pinball machines and do the stuff he actually likes and not worry about the bureaucratic nonsense. Which is something that is very important for all the really successful companies as we've hit on time and time again. You have a really good creative and you have a really good business person who has the acumen to make that vision happen. Yep, that, that is certainly something that we've seen repeated several times with the video game era. And this is a similar situation certainly here with Williams. That goes along for uh, a little over a decade. 
during which Williams has a decent pinball business going on. I mean, they're not the leaders, they're not the Gottliebs of the world or the Bally's of the world, but they have a decent pinball business going on. They do embrace the flipper after it's invented over at Gottlieb, and they do some machines that do okay. But Sam Stern decides to try to take the company to the next level about a decade later in 1959. Because, you know, the coin-op industry is small, it's insular, there's not a lot of sources of revenue. You're selling to a fairly small number of clients and a fairly predictable number of machines. There's not a lot of room for growth there, really. And so I guess he decides he wants to grow because he orchestrates a buyout in 1959 of Williams by a conglomerate called Consolidated Sunray. It's a real estate conglomerate. They own a lot of discount houses, drug stores, those kind of businesses. Many of these businesses are the type that may have a game or two in their front area or something. So I guess that's the connection. I mean, I don't know exactly why he decided to sell to Sunray. But for whatever reason, he does this deal in 1959. That's the point that Harry Williams is no longer involved with the company that bears his name. Both Williams and Stern are given the option of cash or stock, consolidated Sunray stock, because Sunray is actually a public company, which is, I think, why Stern wanted to sell to them. Williams decides to take a cash buyout and he leaves. I mean, he continues to fiddle around with pinball for the rest of his life. He doesn't ever design any particularly significant machines ever again. But he continues to be active and even makes machines for Williams sometimes in the future. It's just that that's the end of him being a formal employee of the company that bears his name, 1959. Sam Stern stays on, and this is the point where he becomes the president of the company and he's uh, in charge of it, answerable to Sunray, presumably. They change their name at this time to the Williams Electronic Manufacturing Company. It just been Williams Manufacturing, now it's Williams Electronic. Uh, again, I don't know the reason for that. It may have just been to make it sound more advanced and fancy. I don't know. Well, it's also the time where electronic anything is becoming very big. Absolutely, though at this point, Williams itself was not actually using electronics in, in any of its products. So don't know exactly what the story is there, but it happened. Now, it turns out that for whatever reason, this thing with Sunray does not work out. So in 1961, they go their own separate ways again. And it's interesting because when they go their separate ways, the trade said that the offer was rescinded and it was rescinded basically effective the same day that the company was bought. I don't know if that means that technically Williams was never owned by Sunray, that they went through two years of negotiations and then rescinded an offer, or if Sunray did own them for those two years, but for some dumb legal or tax reason or whatever, they decided to call it a rescinded offer instead of a spinoff spin or whatever. There's the first of our many uh, strangenesses with Williams. But for whatever reason, it's an independent company again in 1961. This is a period of time when Williams is not doing all of that well. The late 50s is kind of the period when Gottlieb becomes ascendant in pinball. Williams is really not having a great time of it, but kind of at the beginning of the 60s, they hire some better designers. They get some good guys from the competition, like Harry Mabs, who invented the flipper over at Gottlieb, and Steve Kordak, who goes on to work at Williams for decades and decades. He only just died a few years ago in his 90s. He's a guy that started in pinball in the 1930s and was still alive as of a couple of years ago. That's a pretty amazing run. 
Uh, so they brought in some better designers. They retooled their manufacturing line, and they really kind of concentrated on innovation again in the early 1960s. They were the first ones to do a lot of new gimmicks in pinball. They did the first moving target. They did the first drop target that would drop below the playfield when hit. They did the first game to have multi-ball. Multi-ball. They did all of these kind of things in the early 1960s that really helped transform pinball and turn it into a more structured game than it had been before. Because even after the bumper had come along and the ball was kind of ricocheting around the table, it was not a very structured game. It's like ball bounces off things, ball goes to the bottom of the table, hit ball again, keep it going. But now that you have these these drop targets, moving targets, targets that are only active during a particular time window, etc., you have a little more strategy in the game where you're trying as much as you can. There's not much control you can exert, but you're trying as much as you can with your flipper shots to get the ball to certain parts of the play field in order to reap the rewards. And that's still very much how pinball works today. Williams was a big part of getting that ball rolling in the early 1960s. Then in 1964, they get bought out again. This time by a company that is going to stay in control of them for just a wee bit longer than uh, Consolidated Sunray did, and that's the Seaberg Corporation. Seaberg has its own complicated history. The original Seaberg was founded by a Swedish immigrant named uh, Eustace Seaborg in 1902. It was a self-playing piano manufacturer. When the jukebox hit in the early to mid-1920s, mid-1920s, I guess, they entered the jukebox business. They were one of the early companies to get involved with that. It was kind of the natural extension of the coin-operated player pianos, which were kind of the jukebox of their day, so to speak. During the Depression, they hit some hard times, and so they kind of expanded into other coin-op areas. They were basically in everything that you could put a coin on. I mean, they are doing washing machines. They were doing parking meters. Not that they were making, like, the whole meter necessarily, but they were doing, you know, the coin mechanisms and whatnot. And they did some games. They actually released uh, the first game to use a light gun. This is obviously not a video game, but they're kind of involved in all of this stuff. And then after the war, after World War II, they hit it big because they introduced the first 100 record or 100 selection jukebox. You know, today we think of jukeboxes if you even see one. I mean, they're all digital now, but for the sake of argument, you see a jukebox, you think of them having, you know, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of choices. Couple and of course, hundred. Well, and of course, the digital ones have way more than that. I mean, the, the things that modern bars have, <laughs> they have like thousands of songs or whatever. Or they can just be like, we don't care. You want a song? Fine, we'll just download it off the internet. Exactly. Before 1948, when Seaberg introduced this unit, you know, a jukebox could only hold maybe a, a couple of dozen records or whatever. So this was a humongous breakthrough. And of course, it came right before rock and roll hit. And Seaberg ends up cornering about 70% of the jukebox market before the war, Wurlitzer had been the big company. Now it's all Seaberg. That attracts the attention of two guys named Herbert Siegel and Delbert Coleman. These guys are a couple of characters. The Siegel family is a well-connected family that has a few different businesses here and there. Delbert Coleman became friends with Siegel and uh, had been a law student. They got together as uh, turnaround and flip artists on companies. They would make an investment in a company that wasn't doing so well, try to boost its profitability a little bit, 
and then turn around and sell it to somebody else for a profit. That's kind of what they did. They did this with two or three different companies. This is kind of how the craziness of conglomerizing went back then. So they set their eyes on a company called Fort Pitt, which is a Pittsburgh brewing company that is not doing very well. This is in the uh, late 50s. And so they end up buying Fort Pitt because it's, it's available for pretty cheap. Then they decide to expand Fort Pitt into a conglomerate. And so they buy Seaberg because Seaberg is doing very well. But the son of the founder, who's now in charge, used to Seaberg has died, but uh, Noel Seaberg decides to get out of the business. So even though the company is doing well, they're able to acquire Seaberg. And so Seaberg becomes a subsidiary of this brewing company, Fort Pitt. Then they're able to instigate a board coup and get the president of Fort Pitt kicked out of the company. Coleman becomes the new president of the company. That might have been before the Seaberg purchase even, but it's, it's, that's not important whether that's before or after. Then, after they have Seaberg, they rename the Fort Pitt company, the parrot company, Seaberg Corporation. And then they sell off the brewing business. So Seaberg Industries is a, is a subsidiary of Seaberg Corporation, which was a brewing company, but is now no longer a brewing company and is now basically Seaberg, the jukebox maker. That's a little odd. And I guess they didn't want any beer. <laughs> well, it's the era of conglomerizing. They didn't really want the brewing business. It's just that they could buy Fort Pitt because it was doing so poorly. And once they bought it and once they were able to inject some capital in it and get a line of credit going, that would give them the capability to buy other companies that were doing better. And then they could rely on those companies to be their profit drivers and then shed the stuff that they didn't like, including the brewing business. They needed an in. They needed a shell, essentially, a shell company to start this process with. And so they picked a brewer that wasn't doing well. That's pretty convoluted. Yes, indeed. It's not the last convoluted transaction we're going to have with Williams. So once they have control of Seaberg Corporation, which was formerly Fort Pitt, they decide that they are going to make Seaberg into the number one coin-operated company, like, period. That's now their goal. They buy a bunch of vending machine companies. They buy a couple of musical instrument companies, coin-operated musical instruments and stuff. They buy all of this stuff. And then in 1964, they buy Williams. And ironically, they also buy United, <laughs> the company that Harry Williams split from. They buy Williams and United within just a few months of each other so that they can have an amusement arm to this coin-op giant of theirs that's in jukeboxes and vending machines. And so Williams becomes a subsidiary of Seaberg. Sam Stern stays with the company and he remains the president of Williams. United is absorbed into Williams. They buy Williams first. They buy Williams in like May and United in September of 1964. And so United is merged into Williams. The Williams Electronic Manufacturing Company becomes the amusement arm of the Seaberg Corporation, which just less than a decade before had been a brewing company. Because reasons. Yeah. That's the situation that Williams finds itself in here in the middle of the 1960s. You know, they're doing okay in pinball. They're the number two company in pinball during this time period. But, you know, Gottlieb is still far and away number one, but Williams is doing some good innovating. 
United had been very big in shuffle alleys, which uh, we've talked about before. And so Williams, of course, took over that shuffle alley business, and they were one of the leading companies in shuffle alleys. The pitch and bat baseball games, Harry Williams had always liked those. We talked about how his first successful product before he even founded Williams was one of these pitch and bat style baseball games. He actually bought the rights from that game from George Minor at some point, and he continued to manufacture pitch and bat baseball games at some of the other companies he went to work for and then at Williams. And so they had a legacy of that. And Williams was also very big in these pitch and bat baseball games. They released a new model every year, basically, all the way up until about 1973 or so. So, you know, very big in that. So those are kind of the three big fields that they're in, though they're also in, you know, other novelties as well. You know, pinball, shovel alleys, and and baseball games are kind of the big ones. But they're about to go through a whole nother round of crazy financial and corporate machinations. And so now we're going to talk about the process that between 1964, when they're bought by Seberg, and 1980, when they become an independent company again, how they are bought, rebought, spun out, spun out, respun out by multiple different companies in the course of just over a decade. That's not a lot of love. Well, it actually is a lot of love. I know why you're saying that, but it actually is a lot of love because what happens is that the various companies that they're attached to keep failing as companies. But throughout that entire period, Williams specifically is highly profitable. And so it becomes a valued asset. And so it keeps going. We'll show you how we get there in just a second. The man behind all of these machinations that are about to start, and the man who dominates the history of Williams all the way from the mid-1960s until 2001, is a fellow by the name of Louis Nicastro. He's actually still alive as of this recording, as far as I know. He's in his 90s. I will not be talking to him, but uh, <laughs> he's actually still around. Louis Nicastro was a financial guy. He went to Columbia University. He's a New York guy. He was a bit of a rags-to-riches kind of story. He started out as the mailboy at a bank called Bowery Savings Bank in New York. You know, they recognized something in him, his drive, his ambition, his financial mind or whatever. So he kept rising through the ranks there and rose to the position of senior auditor at the bank. So, I mean, he's a finance guy. I mean, he's not in a sexy business, but he really knows numbers really well. After that, he goes to another bank, Inland Credit Corporation, another New York bank, and he stays there for 10 years. And he continues to gain a reputation as being a good deal maker, a good financial guy, somebody that knows how to get resources together for a company, how to recognize valuable assets in a company, all of that kind of thing. And that's what finally brings him to the attention of Delbert Coleman, who we just talked about, who's in charge of Seabird Corporation. So in 1965, he's hired to be the VP of Finance for Seabird Corporation. You know, really becomes the indispensable right-hand man to Delbert Coleman over the next three years. Shortly after he's hired, Seabird sells out. We've talked before about how there was a real era of conglomerizing. We talked about this particularly in the context of Sega, which was a part of Gulf and Western, but also Atari, which was a part of Warner Communications. 
the era in kind of the 1960s and the 1970s, it kind of petered out after that, I think, because of changes in securities laws or tax laws or something that just made it less desirable for companies to do this. But during the 60s and the 70s, it was desirable for your really big corporations to become really, really diversified into all sorts of fields that didn't necessarily have anything to do with their core business competencies. I mean, we still have major corporations today with all sorts of subsidiaries, but generally speaking, companies look for synergies when they combine. They look for areas where they are very similar. Back in this period, they didn't look for similar businesses. They'd buy a company in this field and a company in that field and a company in that field and just be in as many fields as they wanted. So Seaberg ends up attracting the attention of a relatively young company called Commonwealth United Corporation. Commonwealth United is a film and television production company that has had a little bit of success, but has not had a huge amount of success. You know, they're not in the same leagues as your your Paramounts and your Foxes and whatnot. But they've had a little bit of success and they have some money and it's the era of conglomerizing. And so now they're looking for other areas where they can expand into. They kind of want to be an entertainment conglomerate, though they're not only looking there. They do real estate, they do insurance, but they are looking for entertainment properties. So they end up buying Seaberg Corporation. This happens in 1968. By this time, Nicastro is already the president of Seaberg. He's promoted to that position in 1966. With uh, the sellout to Commonwealth, Dell Coleman decides to get out of the, the business entirely, so he leaves. He was still the chairman of the company. He resigns, and Louis Nicastro becomes the chairman as well as the CEO and president of Seaberg Corporation, which is now a subsidiary of this Commonwealth United Corporation. Turns out that Commonwealth is not actually in the greatest of financial shape. They expand really rapidly, really quickly. I think banking on having some hit entertainment properties that'll ultimately allow them to finance this rapid expansion. And they just don't get those hits that they were hoping to get. So within two years of that Seaberg purchase, the company is on the brink of collapse. It is completely falling apart. And this is where Louis Nicastro starts the technique that he will use throughout his tenure as CEO of Williams and Seaberg and all of these other companies, the spinoff. It's it's very shady. It's all very legal, but he gets a reputation as being a kind of shady character because of the spinoffs that he does, because he'll get into a position of power within a company. And that's what happens at Commonwealth, because he's really good with finances. I mean, he's really good. And so when a company's in trouble, they want a good finance man on top to kind of stabilize the situation. So he had briefly moved over to Commonwealth right after the purchase. Then he went back to Seaberg and was running Seaberg. But in 1970, he is made the president of Commonwealth by the creditors because they're desperate to get some kind of return on their investment. What he'll do is he'll get placed in a position of power in a company. He will identify the asset within that company that is most valuable, the part of the company that is still making money. He will spin that company off in order to get a little bit of money for the parent company to satisfy its debts to its creditors. 
so far you're you're saying, okay, fine, companies do that all the time. What's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is that when he spins off the companies, he always ends up spinning off those companies to groups that are controlled by himself. And so he's always able to jump from the falling apart company to the new hotness, take control of that company, continue having success while the shareholders of the old company are left to wither and die in their failing organization. Oh, that's what makes him controversial. So you're taking advantage. He's almost like a vulture. He swoops in, comes in with all these promises of saving the day, finds the most valuable piece of meat shoves it off to the family, and we're good to go. Bye-bye. Exactly. And that's what he does in 19, uh, not quite in 1970, I think. I mean, he's made CEO in 70, but the actual spinoff happens in 1973. So in 1973, he is able to spin off Seberg from Commonwealth because Seberg is still very profitable at this time. It's got the jukebox business. It's got the pinball business. It's got all this stuff that's going decently well for it. So Seberg Industries spins out of Commonwealth and becomes an independent company with Louis Nicastro as the CEO. Seberg Industries continues to also contain the Williams Electronic Manufacturing Corporation division. Sam Stern is still in charge of that division. He very briefly left in about 1970, perhaps because he was worried about the fact that the parent company was falling apart. I don't know. But he briefly left to go to Bally, which needed some help kind of getting their pinball house in order. And so Sam Stern briefly left for Bally, but then he came back. And by this time, he's running Williams again as a subsidiary of Sieber, which is run by Nicastro. The interesting thing there is there were other buyers for Seberg. Of course, they claim that, you know, Nicastro claimed that, you know, they evaluated the other buyers and, and decided that they weren't, for whatever reason, suitable. And so I don't know how much control Nicastro had over the board, whether the board were yes men for him or whether there were a lot of outside directors that were more aggressive. And I don't know. But the board did choose to go with the Nicastro bid rather than some of the others. Taito, for instance, was really interested in buying Seberg. They got very close to a deal. I think a deal was even announced, and then the whole thing fell apart. And instead of Taito owning Seberg, it was the Nicastro family that owned Seberg. Hmm. Who knows? I mean, you know, the, maybe the offers were unsuitable. I'm not making any claim here of any impropriety. I'm just saying that over time, there have been newspaper reports that have been very skeptical at the way Nicastro has continually spun out companies. But I am not making any accusations of my own. We don't want to be sued for defamation of character here. We're poor. <laughs> so that happens in 1973. Another thing that happens in 1973 is that this little game called Pong starts going nationwide. Generally speaking, the pinball companies were not that interested in getting involved in that market. Williams does release a couple of Pong clones. They do the Pong thing. They do the four-player Pong thing. They do the hockey thing. Kind of the same thing that everyone else is doing, that same progression. But by the end of 73, you know, the market collapses in 74 on Pong games, as we've talked about. By the end of 73, they're done. You know, they don't see any future in it. 
that's not really their prime area. They were mostly just taking advantage of what was going on. And so they do not release any video games after 1973 for the rest of the 1970s. No more Williams video games. Williams is a pinball company. They do end up in the lawsuit, uh, the Magnavox files, because they did release some Pong games. And we talked about that in the Magnavox litigation. They were actually the ones that held out to the bitter end. Seberg stayed in the suit all the way until the judge ruled against them. Atari settled. Midway settled. Most of the companies settled. Seberg's the one that fought it all the way through, and they lost. But they weren't a video game company. So it turns out, right after this Seberg thing, Seberg starts not doing so well. In 1973, and by the early 1970s, the jukebox business is on its way out. Jukeboxes just don't have the same level of profitability as they did in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. In 1973, Wurlitzer exits the business. They get out in the United States. And when they get out, they dump their remaining inventory on the market at cut-rate prices. And that causes a cascade effect that hurts the other jukebox companies as well, including Seaberg. So Seaberg's jukebox business really starts to crash and burn in the mid-70s. It becomes so bad, even, that... Louis Nicastro renames Seaberg Industries, I think, to distance itself from the Seaberg division that is not doing so well in jukeboxes. He renames the company XCOR. X-C-O-R. I don't know why, but it's XCOR International. It could be that he was looking to maybe conglomerize again, and so he wanted just a generic conglomerizing name. I don't know. It's a kind of silly name, but X, you know, it's a mysterious letter. Nobody uses X's in anything. Telephone. <laughs> Yes. And isn't that a mysterious instrument? Well, they always play those endearing young charms. Mm-hmm. So, Seaberg Industries becomes Excore International. It's the same company. It's just, in this case, it's a name change. But the company's not doing so well. And in 1979, the Seaberg part of it actually goes bankrupt. The, uh, the jukebox portion of it ends up being sold off to uh, Stern Electronics which is a new company that was just started. This is Gary Stern's company, and, and Sam leaves Williams at this point to help him set that up. Seberg ends up falling apart. And because Seberg's falling apart, and that's the biggest part of the business, X-Core's falling apart. What does our good friend Louis Nicastro do when he has a company that's falling apart? It's time to take that piece of meat and throw it over there. That's right. The one part of the company that's still doing fairly well here in the late 1970s is Williams. Williams, and we'll get into more detail on this in a little bit, Williams does a good job of jumping onto solid-state pinball after Bally is the first company to go there. Williams does a much better job than Gottlieb does of kind of jumping in after. And so the pinball business just explodes in the late 1970s because of solid-state. Even though Williams is not the number one company at this point, Bally is, Williams is able to maintain its number two position and does very well for itself with some of its pinball tables here in the late 1970s. So that business is doing pretty well. So what does our good friend Louis Nicastro do? He spins Williams out of XCore. He does this in 1980. So Williams becomes an independent company with Nicastro as the CEO. 
And he remained CEO, I think, at the beginning of Xcore Corporation as well. But he basically, he sells off Seaberg, the jukebox portion, to Stern Electronics. He lets the rest of Xcore just kind of wither and die and collapse away into bankruptcy. And now he's the CEO of Williams Electronics, which is what they're calling themselves now. That's how we get from a purchase by Seberg in 1964 to being an independent company again in 1980. Well, that was certainly a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. And there's going to be some more shenanigans coming up in a little bit, but that's, that's good for shenanigans for now. At this point, we can stop and kind of look at some of the games side of the company because we are a video game history podcast. Theoretically, yes. We, we do that kind of thing. So we've talked about how Williams has always had kind of this legacy of innovation that I think goes back to the fact that Harry Williams himself was such an innovator back in the 1930s. They were not the first company to get into solid state. That was Bally, and Bally very much reaped the rewards from doing that. But I do think that Williams was the first company to really understand what solid state could do for the industry. And this is because they brought in some very clever, clever, clever people during this time period that kind of grew up with the new technology. Bally made some interesting games in the late 1970s, but they were really kind of parlaying A, being first, and B, getting a lot of good licenses. That's what really made their game successful. But Williams had a cadre of hot new designers that were just unbelievable. And it starts with a fellow named Mike Stroll. When Williams decided that they had to get in the solid state business after Bally, you know, kind of got it rolling, they went to several different semiconductor companies to work with them to try to get together a solid-state pinball system. They understood right away that this is something that they were going to have to get into. Gottlieb was a little slower. One of the companies that they went to was National Semiconductor, very successful semiconductor manufacturing firm. Mike Stroll was an engineer at National Semiconductor. He was the guy that they worked with on this pinball system thing. They were working with other companies as well, but they were working with Stroll. Stroll was so impressive on the technology side that Nicastro ended up hiring him into Seaberg. This is in 1977, uh, before the spinoff, as Seaberg's chief technology officer, essentially, who would be responsible for figuring out how to integrate solid state stuff in all of Seaberg's operations, which included Williams. Mike Stroll kind of is responsible for getting the group of engineers together that kind of becomes the solid-state pinball team. Guys like Ken Fidesna, who then becomes the VP of Engineering at Williams and stays at Williams for a very, very long time. Kind of this core team of people brought in to figure out solid-state pinball, which is why I think they become so effective at it. And then somewhere around 1979 or 1980, Mike Stroll is impressed so much that he actually becomes the president of Williams, I guess, in 1980. Louis Nicastro is the CEO of Williams, but Mike Stroll becomes the president of Williams, the guy running the day-to-day. And so it turns out that Stroll not only knows the technology, understands the technology because he's got the background in that, he also has a very innate understanding of what makes a good game and what makes a good pinball game, something that plays well. 
he's good at recognizing as his engineers are putting things together what is going to be a good product. And so you put kind of that technology know-how and that game know-how together in Mike Stroll, and you just get a group of engineers that are far outperforming the rest of the industry, just in terms of their innovativeness of their designs. The first kind of big hit they have is in 1979, and it's a game called Flash. What sets Flash apart, and it's a big hit, it sells 20,000 units. It's by far the biggest hit Williams has ever had, and it's right up there with some of the biggest runs that Bally has done. What really sets it apart is the use of sound and lights in a very multimedia way. They're probably drawing a little bit from the video game industry in this, too. You know, Williams is not in video games, but they've kind of understood the attraction of the video game from this multimedia standpoint. The pretty pictures and the thrilling sounds and all of that. Light, sound, action, adventure, all yours on a pinball machine. Kind of the main conceit of Flash and what gives it its name is that they have these flash lamps that provide temporary bursts of flashing light when you perform certain activities. You know, like a camera flash. That's where the name comes from. This is not really something that had ever been done in a pinball game before. I'm sure you can point to an example. I'm not saying they're first first, but this kind of thing wasn't done. You had lights on a pinball table, but they basically just served as illumination. And I mean, if you hit a target, maybe something lights up or whatever, but you didn't have these multimedia extravaganzas that we think of in the 80s where you have flashing lights all the time and strobing lights all the time and whatnot on your pinball machines. Just wasn't done yet. Flash was really the first one to do that. And it also had uh, dynamic background sounds, sounds that changed, you know, based on what you were doing. It was just this kind of multimedia experience, which had not been really experienced before in a pinball table. This was a 20,000-unit hit. It was the second biggest game of any kind in 1979. It did have the misfortune of dropping at the same time as this little project called Space Invaders. Oops. But it was still huge. I mean, there was enough room for both. 20,000 units was huge in pinball. And this was the beginning of Williams' ascendancy in pinball. I forget exactly when in the early 1980s they took the number one position from Bally, but they do. They take the number one position in the early 80s and they never let go all the way to the end of their pinball division. You know, it's this team that Mike Stroll and and Ken Fidesna got together that really understood this technology. Certainly none of them were more important than the, the designer of Flash himself, Mr. Steve Ritchie. It's very interesting because Ritchie came out of Atari and Atari's pinball division. He actually got his start on the assembly line as a technician at Atari. And then when Atari created its own short-lived pinball division, he was given the opportunity to become a designer there. I can't say this for certain, but he probably would have never had the opportunity to become a designer at an established company at least not without getting some more experience in other areas first. But because Atari was looking wherever it could to get pinball designers when they were starting their division, he got his shot. And it turned out he was brilliant at it. Atari closed their pinball division. You know, their pinball division didn't do very well, and so he went on to Williams Electronics. He did Flash, which was brilliant. He did another game called Firepower, 
that was absolutely brilliant. It was the first use of multi-ball in an electronic pinball product. Speaking of firepower, my uh, cousin's wife-to-be has a cabinet of that, and I've actually played this pinball game at their house, and it's a lot of fun. And it's always great when you get that multi-ball going. Exactly, and it's another one that has these really interesting use of light as well with the whole lane change feature in it. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, you know, it turns out Richie has a knack for this. I mean, he's got the electronics background, but he's also really good at designing these tables. And he's come from a video game company. And he's presumably, I mean, I haven't interviewed him. He has been interviewed. But, you know, he presumably absorbed some of what goes on in a video game company and kind of took some of those lessons and applied them to solid state pinball. And now he's just making incredible pinball machines. Firepower is also his first collaboration with a programmer by the name of Eugene Jarvis, who also comes over from Atari. Jarvis was one of these typical programming types uh, from this time period. One of these guys who, when he was in high school, saw a computer, an institutional computer, a mainframe, on some class trip and you know, was immediately kind of beguiled and seduced by it and wanted to learn more and started programming and created some of his own programs and this kind of thing. He went to school, to college, to be a biochemist, but he decided that he really wasn't all that interested in that field, and so he switched over to computer science or or engineering. I don't know what the major technically was, because back then not everyone had a computer science department, but he switched over to computers instead. And became a programmer, and then ended up getting hired into the pinball division at Atari. Richie and Jarvis worked together at Atari. So when Richie went to Williams, he convinced Jarvis to go along with him. Atari had Steve Richie, greatest pinball designer ever, and they had Eugene Jarvis, creator of some of the most important video games of all time. And they ended up letting both of them slip through their fingers, though it's not like they knew. I mean, they were getting rid of pinball, so they didn't really need Richie. And Jarvis hadn't had his full kind of flowering yet. So they kind of lost him before they realized what they had. But it's an interesting what if, if Atari had stuck with their pinball division a little longer and Richie and Jarvis had been making games like Flash and Firepower for them instead of for Williams, you know? Yeah, they could have uh, completely turned the entire Atari story around. Exactly. So Firepower does great as well. It sells north of 17,000 units. So Jarvis also works on another game at Williams, separate from Steve Ritchie, designed by another person called Gorgar, another game that comes out in 1979. The most significant thing about Gorgar is it is the first pinball game that has digitized speech as part of the game. So you've got these designers at Williams that are really embracing the solid-state aspect. When solid-state first came in, everyone knew it was going to be important because it made machines easier to service, there were fewer parts, cheaper, etc. I mean, there were lots of good reasons to switch, but, you know, even though Bally's in the lead, they're mostly just doing the same old thing. They're just doing it with circuits instead of relays. Williams, through guys like Richie and Jarvis, is the company that really first understands, now that we are doing solid state, we can make a far more attractive and interesting multimedia product than we could when we were doing relays. 
And the result of that is games like Flash, Gorgar, and Firepower that vault Williams into the number one position. And so even though pinball really collapses during the height of the video game golden age, I mean, pinball sales just absolutely collapse once video takes over. Williams is in a very good position and is really poised to take pinball to the next level when pinball ultimately comes back after video games crash. And it's because of this team that Mike Stroll and Ken Fidesna assembled. Of course, by 1979, Williams realizes that they need to be in the video game industry. This video game thing now looks like it's more than a passing fad. It looks like it's here to stay. They're going to need to do video games as well as pinball. So Ken Fidesna, who's the VP of engineering at the company, puts together a kind of skunkworks project at an offsite, different building than the pinball guys are in, and sets them to work trying to figure out how to break into the video game business. One of the people that is tapped to be part of this new skunkworks is Eugene Jarvis. Now, despite the fact that Jarvis started in pinball, Jarvis had a long history with computer games, with video games. He had played Space War way back in the day. He had played the Galaxy game at Stanford because he had gone to school there. So he'd played that game as well. He joined the Homebrew Computer Club. So he was part of the early microcomputer revolution in California as well. He was dialed into this side of the business. Even though pinball was what he was doing now, he was a guy that really understood video games as well. And so he was a perfect guy to put into this little skunk works to try to come up with a video game product for Williams. So when Jarvis joined this skunk works, he had a lot of ideas. This group was actually a very ambitious group. For their hardware, they decided to create a 16-color hardware system, a system that could support 16 colors. This was in a time when everything was still basically in black and white. Galaxian was about to hit, which kind of shifted everything to color. But at this time, it was still a black and white world. And they decided to go with a system that could display 16 colors, which was an amazing number of colors back in the day. The Williams Arcade hardware was going to be a more vibrant, more spectacular hardware than basically anything else on the market. Eugene Jarvis really wanted to come up with a game that would be worthy of that hardware. So he was thinking of all sorts of crazy things, flying, driving, underground sections, just all this elaborate nonsense. Nonsense only because impossible with the hardware of the time and it would never be finished. So after this initial kind of burst of activity, he starts homing in and he looks at what's already popular in the arcade. At first, he decides that they will do a Space Invaders kind of game, but with a twist. You can shoot diagonally. Ooh. Well, turns out that that was not much of a twist. <laughs> so then he looks at Asteroids. It hits big in 1979. And he's like, well, why don't we do a raster version of Asteroids? Raster scan, because Asteroids was in Vector. The Williams hardware is going to be a raster scan system. Well, the reason that Asteroids is a vector game is because Ed Log, the designer, knew that the tiny rotating spaceship would just basically look like a formless blob with the resolution of raster scan graphics at the time, which were 320 by 240, very primitive. Eugene Jarvis discovered the same thing <laughs> when they tried to do the 
that kind of thing in raster graphics. It was just a blob. It wasn't very appealing. But then they decided to hone in on some of the other aspects of asteroids that they decided were fun. And one of those things that was fun is in asteroids, if you went to one side of the screen, you could wrap around to the other side of the screen. That was something that was very appealing. And so they were like, why don't we take this one step further? What if instead of when you get to the edge of the screen, you immediately wrap around to the other side? What if that world continues? Mm. What if you scroll further on down the line? Okay, well, that seems fun. So now we have a shooting game where you're going to uh, scroll the screen as you're as you're doing your thing. Initially, it was just going to be flying in one direction, just moving horizontally until Steve Ritchie, who wasn't part of the video game effort, but still a guy, Williams, suggested that they put a reverse button in so that then you can turn around and move the other way. So that's when it becomes this thing where you can scroll across a larger terrain that spans out in in both directions from where you are. The name is apparently kind of what came next. He liked the TV show The Defenders. And he decided that Defender would be a good name for the game. If you're going to have a name like Defender, then you should be defending something. So he came up with this idea that there would be these astronauts roaming the surface of a planet and you'll be in space. All of these games are set in space back then because it makes for a really easy background. The hardware wasn't powerful enough to do really colorful backgrounds. And so you set things in space where everything's black. So there'd be these astronauts roaming the surface and you have to shoot these ships that are coming in to, uh, to kill your guys because that seems like a kind of decent adrenaline pumping kind of concept. We've got the basic concept for Defender, but there's still something missing. It's still not all that interesting. The gameplay is not as exciting as it could be. The key breakthrough was when he figured out that those little astronauts that he had roaming the surface, which at this time point were just window dressing, none of the enemies or anything were going to interact with them. He finally realized, if I make the little guys be the thing that the player is defending with their rocket ship, that's what will make this exciting. It just came to him one day, about two weeks before the Hey MOA show where he was supposed to debut this thing, when he still had no idea what this game was going to be, that just came to him in a burst of inspiration. I already have these little men roaming around. Let's integrate them into the game. And so that's how you get what we know today as Defender. The other aspect of it that it would not nearly be the same game without is the audiovisual side, which ended up coming from a brilliant young programmer, a teenage programmer named Sam Dicker. Sam Dicker's main focus at that time was audio. He had been hired as a programmer, an audio programmer in the pinball division. But uh, he joined the video game effort, and it turned out that he could get the most amazing particle effects out of this kind of fancy advanced Williams hardware. So the game featured these beautiful explosions. And of course, there was some great sound design because Sam Dicker then also provided some great sound design. So suddenly you had brilliant audiovisual presentation, both because Williams had invested in a very good hardware and because Sam Dicker was so great at programming these explosions. And you had an exciting game concept because now you actually have to stop these little guys from being taken. And, you know, you have, of course, the opportunity to get them back. He didn't just have ship comes down, snatches, person, flies away immediately. You had an opportunity to actually shoot down that ship and save your little guy. So there's 
a lot of tension. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of activities, a lot of flashy sights and sounds. Is it any wonder Defender becomes the game of 1981? It's a lot of fun. Fly back and forth, save those guys, shoot down those enemy ships that they beam them up. But it could have only been done at the exact moment that it was released. Because this is a game that is complicated. It has a multi-button control scheme. You know, it has one button for forward, one button for backwards, one button for smart bombs, one button for this, one button for that. It has like five button control scheme. You may remember the computer space back in 1971 shipped with a very complicated control scheme of multiple buttons and nobody could figure out what to do with it. But Defender builds on space invaders and asteroids. People already have an understanding of how these systems kind of work. So even though Defender was very hard, I mean, most people that played it, first time or two they played it, you know, they died horribly within seconds. It was just familiar enough, based on the games that came before it, that players were not bewildered and confused and were willing to keep pumping quarters in and figure out how the darn thing worked. Defender doesn't work if you don't have Space Invaders first. But Defender changes everything. I mean, with the scrolling and the multimedia effects and all of that. I mean, Defender sells about 55,000 units in the United States alone and just becomes the next massive hit kind of in the chain of Space Invaders, Asteroids, Defender, Pac-Man kind of thing and keeps this golden age going. And of course, it puts Williams immediately on the map. It's their first video game, not counting the Pong stuff that they did in 1973. It's their first video game. And it's a massive hit. That's a great way to get into the market. It is. The only problem, though, then becomes what do you do next? They have a hit video game, and video games are important to their business. I mean, super important to their business. That means that they have to make more and more and more (laughs) video games. And how do they accomplish this? And what they decide to do is they hire a bunch of people and throw them into this new video game division and hope that they'll come up with a hit game. It's basically it's basically like the thing where, you know, you, a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters and maybe eventually you'll get Hamlet. But applied to video games. Right. Throw enough people at it and hope something else happens. And it never really does, which is a problem. By the time they start figuring things out a little bit, it's starting to get close to the crash. Eugene Jarvis does not like this new situation at all. He liked it better when it was just a little skunk works and it was just a few people working together to do something amazing. So he actually leaves Williams at this point and founds his own company with another designer named Larry DeMar called VidKids. VidKids continues to contract exclusively with Williams. So the games that VidKids comes up with are Williams games in that sense, but they're actually independent contractors. They're not with the company anymore. They do a sequel to Defender called Stargate that does okay. It does like 26,000 units. But then they do kind of the next big brilliant thing in shooting video games that's released in 1982, and that's Robotron 2084. You familiar with that one? I am actually not familiar with Robotron 2084. But I'm sure when I find a video of it on YouTube, I will become very familiar with it. Robotron was basically the perfection of the single screen, two stick shooting game. It wasn't quite the first game to do this, but it just became 
just kind of the sweet spot of this kind of thing. I, I know you've played Smash TV. I have. Smash TV, which we'll get to in our, our second episode on Williams, is basically a follow-up to Robotron 2084. A follow-up done, you know, eight years later, but still a follow-up. I don't know. Did you play that in the arcades or just in the home? Just in the home. Okay, yeah. In the arcades, it had that same twin stick setup, which is basically you have one joystick for moving and you have one joystick for firing. Which they actually did have the capability of doing on the NES, except you had to have one of the four-way ports and you had to use two controllers. Right. And the, the great thing about this, instead of having a joystick and a fire button, is that you can very easily and intuitively be moving in one direction and shooting in a completely different direction. If you have a fire button, it means that even if it's only for a second, you have to move your joystick in a different direction to shoot in that direction. Whereas this way, you can be moving to the left and shooting above you, you know, without a second thought because you're just maneuvering these two joysticks separately. So it's a great system. It was inspired by Berserk. Berserk was a a hit game that came out in 1980 from Stern Electronics. But it didn't have that twin joystick thing going on. It didn't have this ability to move and shoot independently, but it had some of the other stuff. It had robots and you having to avoid robots and shoot robots while you're navigating a maze. Not that Robotron really has a maze. He liked that basic gameplay, but he didn't like the fact that you couldn't move and shoot independently. So he wanted to do his own take on Berserk, but with that moving and shooting independently. And then taking the lessons that he learned from Defender, which is that when you have something that you need to defend, it really raises the stakes. He created this scenario where basically the robots have taken over. It's a 1984 kind of dystopian scenario, except he figured that now that 1984 was just two years away, that wouldn't do for futuristic. And so he named it 2084 instead. Not that 1984 is about robots, but just this idea of a dystopian future where humanity's in bad shape got him to 1984, then he did 2084. We're rapidly running away from 84 and 20. (laughs) Yes. He comes up with another defense scenario where these robots have taken over and you are protecting the last human family, mother, father, kids, on Earth, and you have to save them from the robots. Not only do you have to shoot all the robots and stop them from killing you, you also have to stop them from taking the family away. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Needless to say. It is probably the purest expression of adrenaline that has ever been in the arcade. It is the purest kind of shooter game because it's a single screen game. No scrolling. Robots are everywhere, literally all around you. And you just have to keep moving and shooting, moving and shooting all around the screen until they finally get you. You know, there's still plenty of people that laud that as one of the greatest pure action games ever made. It's another big hit for Williams, though it's developed by Eugene Jarvis at his independent company. It's still a Williams game. So Jarvis continues to be the primary hit maker for the company during this time period. There's really no one else that is doing much until very late in the process. Finally, in 1982, they bring in a guy that starts to bring some order to the creation of games within the company itself. And that's a guy named John Newcomer. Oddly appropriate name. John Newcomer was unusual in the arcade industry at this time because he was not a programmer. 
He was a toy designer. He had done a degree in industrial design. So he had some mechanical engineering background as part of his industrial design, but it was mostly about the design side of things rather than actually the building side of things. And he ended up working for a toy think tank out out of school and designed a bunch of different toys, including some of the early electronic handheld things. When Space Invaders hit, he realized that the kind of simple electronic handheld kind of thing that he had been working on most recently in the toy industry was not going to be a thing anymore. (laughs) It was going to be video games. So he decided to try to find a way to break into that side of the business. At this period of time, you didn't have designers. I think maybe a company like Williams that was also in pinball could understand the concept of designer better than a pure electronics company like Atari, if only because pinball had your people that designed your play fields that were separate from your engineers working with all the relays. But still, even the pinball companies weren't using designers for their video games. By this time, Ken Fidesna and Mike Stroll were getting very disillusioned in the post-Defender world where it turns out that none of the people that they've hired after Defender hit big have managed to come up with any good game ideas. They got programmers. They can push code. But it turns out that Eugene Jarvis is a far rarer commodity than they thought, Mm -hmm. which is true. A programmer that's also a good designer is a rare thing. and. In the Valley, a company like Atari could kind of get away with it because there are so many programmers attracted to the Valley that you can find the ones that are also good designers. You can kind of pick them out of the pile. Chicago has a smaller pile. Newcomer meets Ken Fidesna and is pitching this idea of being a game designer. At the exact same time that Ken Fidesna is realizing that his programmers aren't coming up with good game designs. It's a match made in heaven. So Newcomer becomes one of the very first dedicated game designers in the American industry. This kind of thing had sort of been done already in Japan by guys like Toru Iwatani and Shigeru Miyamoto, but not so much in the States. So Newcomer is brought on to Williams specifically just to be a game designer, not a programmer. And he's tasked with coming up with a book of ideas of games to try to inspire these new programmers that aren't getting anywhere after Defender was such a success. After he made this book of ideas, he basically decided to pick what he considered his favorite from all of these ideas he came together and pitch to his superiors that he actually get the opportunity to to make a game himself. And since they were so desperate for games, they said sure. And so the game that he picked was a flying game. He wanted to do something involving flying. But he didn't want to do a space game. He felt that there were a lot of people that were interested in the concept of flight that weren't necessarily interested in the concept of spaceships. And so he wanted to explore flight in other ways. He basically made a list of everything that could fly. And he finally came up with the idea of a game involving birds. This was the genesis, of course, of the arcade game Joust. I know you're familiar with that one. I am very familiar with that one. He worked with a programmer to do this Joust game, and Joust was a big hit. And more importantly, Joust was was a big hit that did not come from Eugene Jarvis, which they kind of needed. They needed to, to get a broader base. Joust hits big in 82. Robotron hits big in 1982. They license a game from Irem called Moon Patrol that does pretty well in 1982. 
they're really finally starting to get a handle on this whole video game thing. And then it crashes. Oh! <laughs> then it most definitely crashes. Williams is caught up in the crash just like everybody else, obviously. It hits them hard. They put out games that aren't, suddenly aren't doing as well. Eugene Jarvis is so discouraged that he leaves the industry entirely. He goes back to school to get a, an advanced degree in something or another, not programming, and uh, leaves the industry. Williams loses money just like everybody else does. But Williams is able to limp along because they are the one company that didn't stop investing in pinball during the period of time when video was becoming so big. So unlike a Bally or an Atari, which didn't have any good place to go when video turned south, Williams was able to go back to pinball because they still had some of the greatest pinball designers in the industry that really, as we talked about before, understood this market and could apply kind of the lessons of video and the flashy sights and sounds and multimedia stuff to the old game of pinball and to create something really new. That's basically what they do in the early 1980s. The first important game in this new wave of Williams pinballs is a 1984 game called Space Shuttle. Have you played that one? I have not. Yeah, it's not as impressive as some of their others, but it's got a good solid theme where you have to hit various targets in various places to to get points to acquire the space shuttle. And there's there's multi-ball and there's kind of all of these gimmicks that, that Williams does so well and this multimedia presentation that Williams does so well. And Space Shuttle does pretty well. I mean, it's kind of the first pinball game to do much in several years because by 84, video is largely crashed and operators are starting to become more interested in pinball again. But the game that really got this renaissance going was a little product called High Speed. Have you ever played the uh, Pinball High Speed, Jeff? I don't think so. Yeah, it's an interesting game. It was the first game they released on a brand new hardware system they called the System 11 that only a couple of games were made on. And the thing about it is by this time, they've really gotten kind of good at integrating video game conceits into their pinball. So this game's got like this whole plot going on in it almost. Basically, it's, it's based on a real-life event. Steve Ritchie, the great pinball designer who did so many of these games we've discussed, kind of led the police on a high-speed chase once. Oh, dear. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that, but everyone was okay. I think his final speed was something like 146 miles an hour or something, so the story goes. Important safety note, kids. Don't run away from the cops. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, he made it. He had a cool story, and he had a good idea for a pinball game. <laughs> the joys of youth. High Speed has a few features that are more advanced than previous games. It has a full alphanumeric character display, so you're not just able to display scores in the digital readout. You can display words and such, too. Very fancy for the time. Mm -hmm. Another interesting feature that it had is it was also the very first pinball game to actually have a song playing continuously during the action. So just like a video game that has a soundtrack going, High Speed actually had a soundtrack that further kind of immersed you in the action that was going on on the pinball playfield. 
And it also really took this whole flashing lights thing to a whole new level. We talked about how in Flash they used like the flashbulb thing. In this game, you can kind of be going along, hitting your ball around. And then suddenly, if you do the correct things in the correct sequence, you end up in the high speed chase. And there is a police siren on the uh, pinball machine itself that goes off because the cops are now on your tail. Run, run. (laughs) And so to quote unquote lose them, there's actually a ramp that leads to an elevated ball lane. Of course, we'll put high speed in the show notes, so I'm sure some of these features will be viewable in there. And so if you get your ball up that ramp and into that high speed lane that represents kind of the highway, because there's like road signs and everything on the table and everything, then you can quote unquote lose the cops by going real fast on the highway to get away from them. It's almost got these plot elements. I mean, it's still pinball. It's still hit things with the bumper and and there's random chance and maybe this happens and maybe it doesn't. But you can almost get a plot out of it. It's almost more video game like. That's something kind of cool that people really liked. Sounds good to me. It's such a fun conceit. And that game does really well. And that's a 1986 release. And I mean, Williams pinball is back. So even though Williams goes through a very serious trouble period and there's talk of the company having to be sold or or whatnot, they end up making it through okay during this transition period because the pinball ends up doing so well for them again. They get out of video. I mean, they, they really they stop doing video again. They essentially become a pinball company again. It's possible they released some minor thing in this time period, I can't remember, but they're, for all intents and purposes, a pinball company. And they've also started to diversify into other areas as well. Louis Nicastro really wanted to kind of follow in the footsteps of Bally and get more involved in the gaming side of the business, the gambling side of Coinop, not just in the manufacturing, but also the operating side. He tried really hard to break into Atlantic City, just as Bally had done before him, but he was unsuccessful in getting a license. Instead, in 1982, he decides to go into Puerto Rico. He partners with some other companies on a couple of casinos in Puerto Rico. It's a somewhat easier market to get into from a licensing perspective, though it's not as lucrative a market as Vegas or Atlantic City are because... Their gambling laws are stricter there. But still, it's a place where he's able to own a casino or two, which he proves unable to do in the United States. So they're diversifying into that. And then in 1988, by which time pinball tables like Space Shuttle and High Speed have really brought the company back from the brink and turned them around, they actually end up buying Bally's amusement business. So that's the pinball and video game divisions of Bally Manufacturing. That happens in 1988. But they've gotten their major competitor, the big one of pinball. Absolutely. And they're theirs now. Exactly. As well as the big one in video mm-hmm. um, alongside Atari in the United States, at least. Obviously, there's the Japanese companies. And at this point, they go in for a bit of a name change. Because they're fairly diversified at this point. They have the Williams thing. They have the Bally thing. They have the Midway thing because Bally owns Midway. They have the casino thing. So they also changed their names, name at this point to WMS Industries. It's not a very sexy name, but it's basically the corporate overlord that's going to release things under all of these different labels. 
So they continue to release Bally pinball machines alongside Williams pinball machines. They do both. They also decide that they're going to start releasing video games again and that they're going to release their video games under the Midway name. Because Midway is a bigger name than Williams because Midway had Space Invaders and Galaxian and Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. So Midway is a much bigger brand in video games than Williams is. So you've got all of these different brand names that they're using. So they rename the parent company with this generic name, WMS Industries. They prepare to enter the video game market again for the first time in a real way in about half a decade. And of course, when they do so, it's going to end up being one of the most sustained, successful runs by any American video arcade game company ever. And that is where we are going to pick up this story in part two of our look back at the Williams Electronic Manufacturing Corporation. The crazy will continue next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.